Thank you, team. That was super. Before we get into our topic, let's pray again. Gracious Father, we do thank You. Thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that You have called us to be together. To be part of what You are doing. Lord, we ask that You would continue to speak to us, to change us, to transform us into the ambassadors that we ought to be. That we might be in a in the right place, um, with the right words and deeds, to be able to proclaim the salvation that you have prepared in Jesus' name. And we thank you, thank you, Lord, for loving us, for loving this world so much that you would even send your beloved Son. We thank you, Father. Help us to be faithful to the commission that you have given us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think from the very beginning, and certainly since uh, the middle of the second century, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have formulated creeds to express in a shorthand form the biblical truths embodied in our faith. One of the earliest of these is commonly referred to as the Apostles' Creed, although I don't think the Apostles had much to do with the formulation. And it concludes with the statement, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, or the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Our topic today is the church. Monday afternoon, a friend or co-worker asks in the course of conversation, where is your church? How do you answer? Do you point them to this building? Suggest that you might better answer something like, well, let's see, at this time of day, Hannah's likely at home, but Trevor will be at at work in the bus garage. Uh, Rod will likely be at the pharmacy counter. Uh, Kathy will be in her engraving shop. Uh, John will be at the drugstore. David's likely at the hospital. Uh, Ryan is doing his policing work. Um, there are several others whose uh, locations for work I don't know, and you might find quite a number of the rest at home. Uh, but how about you you meet with us on on Sunday when we gather together, when the church comes together? Because really, that's the church. Three weeks ago, Dave outlined what God has done in Jesus Christ to reclaim a people for Himself. How we individually receive the benefits of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
Last week, Jim outlined our status, our identity as individuals before God in Christ Jesus. But there's a whole lot more to our faith than that. As we've been frequently reminded, it's one thing to be saved from our sin. It's quite another to be saved for something. Listen carefully to the language that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The idea of church was part of our faith right from the beginning. At one point, Jesus was talking with his disciples and he asked, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One thing that Jesus says here is something that Peter reiterated a few years later. The church is something that requires the act of construction. Church is not a building. When the last book of the New Testament was written, it was simply unthinkable that anyone would have a separate building that was uniquely linked to Christian activities. In fact, I think if there had been uh, such structures, they would likely have been burned or demolished rather quickly because of the general distrust and the persecution of the followers of the Lord Jesus. Instead, Christians met in homes or lecture halls or outdoors, wherever they could find suitable space. Look carefully at who is the constructor of record for the church. 
Jesus said that He would build His church. Peter said that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You can't build a house with one stone. You're being built up as a spiritual house through Jesus Christ. The founder and the builder is none other than Jesus Himself. Now we're used to the idea of church as being linked to a locality in some fashion. And as I was kind of thinking about this message, I was struck at the recognition of the singular nature of the church by the translators of both the New International and the English Standard Versions. If you look at Acts 9 and verse 31, it says in both of these translations, So the church, singular, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built, being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. thought that was interesting. The church in this version, in this uh, verse, is singular, even though it was located across a whole district, including many towns and cities. Jesus said that he would build his church, not that he would build many churches. Now, in honesty, I have to say that it's true that the word is also and most commonly used of a local gathering and especially of the, the assembly of Christians within a town or city. So, Paul addresses his letters, for example, to Corinth, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Although when you read through the letter, it's clear that there were different gatherings in Corinth. And again, to the church of the Thessalonians. And likely, again, it was a number of house groups. It's also used of the microcosm of a house gathering, as distinct from the, the whole church of a city, uh, or the whole of the church around the world. In, uh, For example, at the end of uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he says, Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, now listen to the words, but all the churches of the Gentiles, thanks as well, greet also the church in their house. An interesting use of the word. See, when the New Testament was being written, the human authors had a choice of words to use. Since the earliest Christians were Jews, it might have been natural for them to refer to their gatherings as synagogues. Because Jews gathered as synagogues wherever and whenever there were at least 12 male Jews in the area. That word includes the notion of a building, as can be seen in several gospel passages where it's recorded that Jesus entered the synagogue to whatever, 
or when the centurion was praised for having built the synagogue at Capernaum. But the meaning of this word is too broad. Synagogue is just, it means, it refers not only to a building and to the Jews who gather for worship and teaching, but it also includes the hangers-on, those who are not really Jews, but who are God-fearing Gentiles. It refers not only to those who are um, diligent and have a right relationship with God by faith as Jews, but also to those who merely go through the actions. On the other hand, there was the other word, ecclesia. Uh, that was also available. In the classical sense, this word ecclesia uh, refers to an assembly of citizens that are called out for a particular purpose. It might be for a democratic vote, or it might be for the defense of the city. But these people are called out of the general population for this purpose. And that's the word that was chosen, which is translated church in our English Bibles. It refers to an assembly or assemblies of those who have been called out of the world for a particular purpose. So what's the purpose? Acts 1 and verse 7, Jesus told the first disciples, he said, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So, so much for forecasting the exact day of the, the return of the Lord. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and here it is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the world, the end of the earth. So our first purpose is to bear witness to the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and to proclaim the availability of salvation in Him. All through the Old Testament, God was working in the covenant relationship that He had established with Israel to declare His unique existence. And the rest of the world, much like today, followed a variety of gods and um, some of those were reasonably wholesome, and then there was the rest. Um, but God was working through Israel to de declare to the rest of the world His uniqueness, His power, His sovereignty, His redeeming love. And as we listen to the words of the prophets, when they were pronouncing judgment on the various nations, I was reading through Ezekiel recently. And over and over again, 
Ezekiel was charged with pronouncing judgments on various nations. And then God would say through Ezekiel, when this has happened, then they will know that I am the Lord. The purpose was to declare His existence and consequently to require people to respond. In a similar way, we are charged with the responsibility to declare the sovereignty of our King and the imminence of His second coming. Peter put it, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. What's the rest of it? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. As the infant church learned to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, they realized that the declaration was not merely in words, but also in our mutual relationships and in our love and care for each other. So just a few chapters later, the church has been born by the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 4, we read, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, it's to the credit of the Christian church, and this is something that is not often recognized outside of the church. But in the fullness of time, the church was responsible for the development of hospitals and orphanages, shelters for the homeless and the abused, for food banks, along with universities and colleges, because Christians observed the needs they saw around them and sought to address them. In John 14, uh, Jesus said to His disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whoa! Greater works? I don't know about you, but I have a hard time getting my head around the possibility of doing the same works uh, in spite of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But greater works? Well, I think the answer to the riddle is found in, or partly in, at least, in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. First um, Corinthians. And verse 21. Verse 12, sorry. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the body, the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Um, While Jesus can and does do what only he can do, he chooses to depend on Did we suddenly lose it? No, we're back. He depends on his church to be his hands and feet and voice in the world. But there are a great many of the necessary skills that I don't have. And every one of us has the same or similar limitations. But together, together we can do anything the Lord calls us to do. And this, I think, is the, the basic reason for church. It's the reason we belong together. Simply put, we cannot do very much as individuals. But together... We can be unstoppable. There's a story told about a horse pull contest. The prize winning horse was able to pull a sled, a load of some 9,000 pounds. The runner up pulled 8,000 pounds. So after the contest, the owners of these two horses tried an experiment. They hitched the two together as a team. What do you think the result would be? If one can pull nine and the other can pull eight, together they should be able to pull 17. In fact, the owners of these two horses were quite surprised to discover that as a team, they were able to pull 30,000 pounds. Almost twice the capability of each of them individually. In a similar vein, we can do much better together than separately. No wonder Jesus spoke of us doing greater things. And that's why the letter to the Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's the theory. And I probably don't need to say much more about application. Um, I was reminded of Gen- the passage in Genesis 11, 
in which the Lord has come down to see what was going on in um, uh, around the, the tower, the Tower of Babel. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible to them. That's why he disrupted the languages. Unity of purpose for good or evil is almost unstoppable. And again, that's why Jesus prayed in, in his high priestly prayer in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here's the purpose. That the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, in other assemblies and churches across the city and around the world, is a powerful testimony to the work of Christ in our midst. And for that reason, we need to be together in worship and in the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to be as one in prayer and in the study of God's Word. And there are other purposes for the church as well. Among them is the mutual encouragement and accountability and teaching and training that can only happen when we're together. Paul outlined some of this in his letter to the uh, Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 4. And he writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the target. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear, for bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure to, of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed 
to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There are the church is equipped with a variety of gifts. Um, and and there uh, they're, those gifts are ministered through various people so that the church may be properly equipped and trained to bear faithful witness to our Savior's redeeming love. The lone wolf Christian, of which the Scriptures know nothing, the person who does not associate with other Christians on a regular basis, does not have these resources and, in fact, is likely to be stillborn. The problem, of course, is that we're human beings. And although we've been redeemed from our sin, we're still infected. And uh, not infrequently, it's pride or whatever other... um, sinful attitude uh, so that Christians have been sometimes unwilling to submit themselves to the God-appointed leadership of the local church. As a consequence, have not been as faithful representatives of Jesus uh, just because when you go off on your own, you're not in a position to be trained. You're not in a position to be taught. Um, the end result is a large number of people that we see today who will openly say that they they like Jesus, but they absolutely refuse to be part of organized religion, that is, the church. And still, the church is our God's primary agency to lead children and women and men to the Savior. We need to become better ambassadors for the King. In uh, you know, looking at the at the whole picture, the church is glorious. Yeah, we've done some things wrong. Some of our misguided attempts at mission activities, uh, some of our attempts at uh, military conquest over the centuries, been absolute disasters and have spoiled the church for many. But overall, look at the victories. In 1870, John Ellerton wrote a poem that ended up in a lot of hymn books, but not in ours. And part of it is this. We thank Thee that Thy church, unsleeping while earth rolls onward into light, 
Through all the world her watch is keeping and rests not now by day or night. As o'er each continent and island the dawn leads on another day, the voice of prayer is never silent, nor dies the strain of praise away. The sun that bids us rest is waking our brethren neath the western sky, and hour by hour fresh lips are making thy wondrous doings heard on high. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this assembly, for the elders whom you have appointed, for the teaching that we receive, for the training we receive. We thank you, Lord, that you have taught us in these last few years to um, be more cooperative with other assemblies, other churches. Thank you, Father. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as an assembly, as a local church, to be a better representation of the Lord Jesus, to be better ambassadors, to be more faithful in our proclamation, to be more diligent in our obedience to You, in our willingness to reach out in acts of love and kindness and helpfulness. Lord, by the power of Your Spirit, work in us, work through us. Bind us together in Your love, not so that we can be ingrown, but rather, Lord, that we might be better equipped to reach out into this hurting world. Help us, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen.